Welcome everyone to Torah Today Ministries and our continuing series, Parsha Seasonings, where we take the weekly portion and we look for some anomalies in the Hebrew or in the Torah scroll itself. And this week's Torah portion, Say, which means when you go out, is found in Deuteronomy 21.10 through 25.19. Now, Say uh, is a very robust Torah portion. It covers 31 different topics and contains 72 positive and negative commandments. But there aren't that many oddities in the Hebrew. There are a few. And in the Torah scroll, I'm not aware of any. But uh, there's still some interesting things here that uh, do not reveal themselves to the, in the English translation. So uh, I hope you'll enjoy some of the insights here as much as I do and you'll enjoy puzzling over them and drawing insights from them. So, let's begin with the very first verse. In fact, let's start with the very last verse of the previous Torah portion, Shoftim. Last week's Torah portion, Shoftim, ends with this phrase, When you do what is right in the eyes of Adonai. And then Kitetse begins with this phrase, When you go out to war. And the rabbis have put these two together, and we can derive from this that whenever you do what's right in the eyes of Adonai, you will find yourself in warfare. We do have an enemy, and uh, if you don't have the enemy attacking you and, and trying to stir something up in your life, you're probably not doing something right. But uh, if he is attacking, then you're probably doing something right. So when we do what is right in the eyes of the Lord, it's not if you go out to war, it's when you go out to war. Now, the Hebrew word for war is the word milchama, milchama. There you see it at the top. That's just the standard word for warfare. But what you find in the middle of the word, the three letters lamad chet mim spell the word lechem which is the Hebrew word for bread. Bread. This is not an accident. God placed it there because we have to understand something about the Hebraic mindset when it comes to war. In many wars, you determine who the winner is by who managed to kill the most enemy or who happens to capture the city or rescue the princess or whatever the story may be. But in Hebraic thought, the war is won by whoever captures the most land. Captures the most land. Or if you're the defender, if you're able to defend all of your land. But in warfare, it's not how many enemy are killed, but how much land is defended or captured. Why? Because land produces lechem, produces bread. The purpose of warfare is life. And I know that sounds like uh, it's totally contradictory, but we must remember that peace and life are the result of victory, not of compromise, not of rolling over. And victory only comes through warfare. We were born into this world. We we're born into a war zone. And uh, the sooner we realize that and learn how to use the weapons God has provided us, 
and how the enemy strategizes against us, the more victories we'll have and the less we'll, uh, we'll stew about all the things we go through. We'll find out that our God, as it says in Psalm 23, 5, that our Lord prepares a, a, a banquet for us, uh, a table in the presence of our enemies. Think about that. Picture yourself in a place where you're surrounded by enemies and they've got their swords out, their spears, their bows, their arrows, and they're gnashing their teeth and they're ready to attack. And God says, hey, come sit down and have a bite to eat. It's like, well, Lord, don't you see all the enemies around me? He says, yeah, no problem. Let's eat first. Let's relax. And that's what God does. He prepares a table for us in the, in the presence of our enemies. And um, so if we have faith in God, if we're doing things right, the victory is ours. Uh, one of the worst things we do is be afraid. But anyways, I'm really digressing from our points here. So let's move on to the next thing. Now, in chapter 21, verse 17, it discusses the man who takes a second wife. And let's say the first wife has a son, and then he takes a second wife, and she has a son. And for whatever reasons, he likes a second wife a lot more than his first. God is saying, whether you like her more or not, the firstborn son of your first wife gets the firstborn status. Firstborn status is something we'll discuss in another teaching. Uh, I've discussed it extensively in the story of Jacob and Esau and how J uh, Esau spurned his, his birthright, which is part of the firstborn status, but he wanted his blessing, which is also part of the firstborn status. So anyways, God is saying here, rather he must acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the first fruits of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. So twice we find the word firstborn, which is the word bachor, bachor. And the firstborn is to be given a double portion. Now, Messiah is called the firstborn of all creation. We have to understand something. Uh, the firstborn status would normally belong to the first son to be born. But if that son proved unworthy, it went on to the second son, or the third, or on to the fourth. And in the case of Jacob's sons, the firstborn status moved from Reuben because of his sin. The next two in line were were um, Simeon and Levi, but because of their sin at Shechem, the firstborn status passed on to the fourth son, which was Judah. And so it's from Judah that the kings of Israel would come. And in fact, Jacob had two firstborn sons. He had the firstborn son, which came through Leah, but Rachel was the woman that he originally wanted to marry, the only woman he wanted to marry. And so her firstborn son, Joseph, was also considered a firstborn. But that's another long story. But the firstborn status, uh, whoever has that, gets a double portion of the inheritance. Also, double the responsibilities in the family when the father passes. But he gets a, a double blessing of the inheritance. And what's interesting is the word bachor, we spell it here down the left-hand side, 
Beit, Kaf, Vav, Resh. Each of these numbers is very unique in that it's a doubling. Beit is the second letter of the alphabet, has numerical value of two. It's worth double the letter before it. Kaf has numerical value of 20, which is double the letter before it, which is Yud, which has numerical value of 10. Let's skip Vav for a second, go to Resh. Resh has a numerical value of 200, which is double the numerical value of the letter before it, which is Kof. But Vav has numerical value of 6. But Vav is the only letter whose name, when you spell it out, is just the doubling of the letter. Vav is spelled Vav-Vav, as you see here. You just double the letter. So everything here has to do with a doubling. And so we see built into the word Bachor, this doubling of everything that goes to the firstborn son. Now, as we move on to Deuteronomy 22, verse 10, it says that you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Now, there's a lot of good reasons why you would not plow with an ox and a donkey together. I don't know why anyone would even imagine doing such a thing, but there's still a mitzvah here, a commandment that we do not put an ox and a donkey in the same yoke. And think about it. Um, an ox is a kosher animal, a donkey is not. An ox is big and a donkey is small. And um, there are an, any number of differences between these two animals that would suggest you do not plow with them together. But this word plow is, uh, is a very common word in the scriptures, but only in two places is it pronounced as you see it here, takharosh. And I have put the vowel pointings so you can see how the vowel pointings are. And takharosh uh, is found this way with this pronunciation only two places in the entire Bible. So here's one of them, Deuteronomy 22.10, you shall not plow with an ox and donkey together. And here's the other place. It's in Proverbs 3.29. It says, do not plot evil, which is exactly the same word, tacharosh. Do not tacharosh against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. I think it's fascinating that this word has these two uh, two very different definitions. In fact, the root of the word tacharosh, kerish, usually means to be quiet. But Hebrew is very odd. It's very fluid in how it can take on different meanings. And, and uh, we have to learn how to, how to decode the words of Hebrew. So what does do not plot evil against your neighbor have to do with not plowing with an ox and a donkey together? At first, it doesn't seem to have any connection. But as you ponder it for a while, you'll notice a couple of things. First of all, both of them describe a mismatch. The mismatch between an ox and a donkey. And also the mismatch between a neighbor and a neighbor who plots evil against him. It's almost as if God is saying, your neighbor because of his proximity to you, is someone who shares a yoke with you. And to some degree, you and your neighbor must accomplish a common purpose as long as you are neighbors. 
But if you're plotting evil against your neighbor, your neighbor who's relying upon you, that's a mismatch. That's like plowing with a donkey and an ox at the same time. You're not going to get the work done. And it's going to be really strange. It's really out of line. It's not normal. And for an evil to plot, or a neighbor to plot evil against their neighbor is not normal. And it's something God forbids. I think there's a lot more going on here, but I'll leave it to you to continue to uh, meditate on this and see what insights you derive. Deuteronomy 23.13 is another case where we have a word that appears only two times. And it says in 23.13, And ye shall have a tent peg with your weapons. Now, that word weapons is the word ozen, which every other place in the Bible is translated ear. But uh, here it's translated weapons. Now, some translations will put tools, put it with your tools. But whatever tools these are, they agree there's some kind of a pointy tool. But the, uh, the most, I think, accurate translation is weapon. And in fact, in uh, Aramaic, this word does mean weapons. So I'm going to go with weapons here. And it says, you shall have a tent peg with your weapons. You know, I think of the, the whole armor of God as it's described in Ephesians. Um, I don't see a tent peg listed among the armor and the weapons. And uh, what does a tent peg have to do with our weaponry? Or if you translate it tools, why do we have to have a tent peg as a tool? Well, let's go on and see what it says. And when you sit down outside, you shall dig. You shall dig a hole with it and turn back and cover up your excrement. So, it's talking about hygiene in the camp. And so you carry among your weapons this kind of forgotten weapon, which is the tent peg. The word for tent peg is atid, and it's, uh, it's something we don't talk about much. When you think about the tabernacle, we think of all the gold that was used and the, the gold-plated um, gold-covered timbers that were used for the walls of the holy place, and the Ark of the Covenant, the table of showbread, the golden menorah, the golden table of incense, and then the outside in the courtyard, the bronze altar and the bronze laver. And then you've got these, these tapestries hanging at the entrance and the beautiful embroidery that makes the ceiling of the tabernacle. And you've got the, the, um, uh, the panels of fabric all the way around the outside that create the courtyard and the planks and the hooks that hold all this in place. But without the lowly tent pegs, none of it would really stand up. The ceiling would cave in, the outside walls would blow down. That tent peg, that thing that anchors the tabernacle to the earth, is pretty important. And though the other materials of the tabernacle were described in great detail and their materials and everything else, the tent pegs aren't really described. They're just tent pegs. Common, old, everyday tent pegs. And yet, these humble tent pegs make everything tend to stand up and stand in place. I think the tent peg represents true humility. And true humility is a powerful weapon. And 
I don't care how dignified a person is, whether they're a rock star or royalty or a president or a dictator, a king, they still all have to go and they have to sit down and produce excrement. There's just no way around that. There's something that we all have in common and that's our basic human bodies that have certain needs and have to be taken care of. And so God says, when you do this, you keep with your weapons a tent peg so you cover up what your body produces because he walks in our camp. He doesn't want to be offended by the things that are produced just naturally out of this human life that we live in these bodies. So he's saying, just be humble, cover it up, don't put it on display, and, um, and then turn your back to it and move on. So this word is found only two times, only two times. It's found here, and it's found in Job 11:18. It says, you'll be confident because there is hope. Vichafarto, you will dig around you and lie down secure. It's almost like, again, the war zone. And God is saying that what you're going to do is you got to dig a foxhole and that you put yourself in it. And if you put yourself in this place of lowliness, you're protected. I have several friends who have been in combat. And if not in combat, they've at least been in the military. <laughs> One of the skills they had to learn very quickly is how to dig a foxhole. Because to live, dig a foxhole, to put yourself down low, is to put yourself in a place of safety. And so in both of these verses, we see this word, which is only used twice referring to very humble acts, very humble things. And in the first one, God wants the excrement covered so that he's not offended as he walks among the camp. And in the second verse, we're putting ourselves down low. And in both cases, this is something we do that has a powerful outcome. Humility. Humility. It's... Uh, it's never overrated. In fact, it's so underrated. So anyways, I, I, I have all these ideas. I'm tempted to spin off into other areas, but we'll save that for another teaching. As we go on, we come to Deuteronomy 25.3. It says, 40 stripes may be given him. Uh, one of the forms of punishment was to whip someone 40 times. And uh, they may have used like a, a cane or something. So basically, it's a spanking. Forty stripes may be given him, but not more, lest if one should go on to beat him with more stripes than these, your brother be degraded in your sight. So the purpose is to bring a degree of shame. You know, people talk about cruel and unusual punishment, but the truth is, if punishment isn't a little cruel and unusual, is it really punishment? And, uh, and sometimes shame is one of the things that helps us learn to correct our paths and to be humble. And God does allow us to be ashamed. It does have a purpose. But we're never to shame others. We're never to do that uh, purposely. We're not to take that upon ourselves to shame another. So anyways, it says that you're doing this, but this person who's being 
being beaten and beaten publicly, he is your brother. And so what happened is that the rabbis decided, well, just to play it safe, we will not give 40, we'll give 39 stripes, only 39. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 11.24, Paul says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. So 39 lashes. And one of the reasons they decided to go with 39 is because you take the Hebrew word for your brother, which is achecha, it has a numerical value of 39. And then lastly, I love this. In Deuteronomy 25, 19, it says, Therefore, when Adonai your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that Adonai your God has given you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. We first encounter Amalek in a real way in, in Exodus, early in Exodus, when the Israelites have crossed the Red Sea and they come to their very first battle. And God says a very strange thing. He says, you will utterly erase the name of Amalek from under heaven and you will battle Amalek from generation to generation. Seems very contradictory. But what we learn about Amalek is that Amalek, which means people of licking up, Amalek represents the flesh. Whenever we don't walk in the Spirit, this, our Amalek, rises up to make us animals if it can. We do have animal bodies, and if we do not walk in the Spirit, we will fulfill the lust of these animal bodies. And Amalek will rise up. And remember, in the battle against Amalek, when Moses would hold the staff above his head, uh, Amalek was weakened, and Joshua and the Israelites would win. But when his arms grew weary and the staff was lowered, Amalek was strengthened. Amalek was weakened. Amalek was strengthened. It's very fascinating. And so as we hold up Torah, as we follow Torah, and we, and we commit ourselves to following God's ways, Amalek is weakened. But there's a day coming when Amalek will be completely forgotten, completely wiped out. And so... Here's the word Amalek as it appears in Hebrew. And whenever a scribe is making uh, scrolls for tefillin or mezuzah scrolls or writing a Torah scroll, he has to do it on parchment and he uses a quill pen, a feather pen. And uh, you wear out these feather pins after a while. You have to use a pin knife and, and cut a new feather. And you want to test it out to make sure it's writing the way it should before you continue writing your Torah scroll or whatever. So what they do when they've made a new pen, they get a scrap piece of parchment, they dip the pen in the ink, they write the name Amalek, as you see it here, and then they take their pen and they cross it out. You just cross it out like this. And once they've done that and it looks good to them, they throw that scrap away and they continue writing their Torah scroll. So every time a scribe makes a new pen, he crosses out the name Amalek. You know, it wouldn't be a bad exercise if whenever you or I get a new pen or a new pencil, or after we sharpen a pencil, just write down the word Amalek, cross it out, just as an exercise. 
to remember that we have an ongoing battle against this enemy that walks around with us. If we don't hold up the staff of Torah, then Amalek will grow strong and we'll find ourselves living less like Messiah and more like animals. So let's walk in the spirit. And how do we do that? By out of love, obeying the holy scriptures that God has given us. Our handbook on how to be a human being. Our discipleship manual for the messianic life. So I hope these uh, few brief insights have given you something to think about. And uh, until next week, when we look at the Torah portion then, I wish you shalom and God bless.